Well, happy Mother's Day to all the mums out there. Um, I hope you kids have spoiled your mums this morning, or grandmothers as well, which are a few. Um, I had the pleasure over Easter of uh, visiting the Bells Place um, for Easter lunch. Had a lovely time. Um, now, some of you will know uh, their young... I'm going to embarrass him here, but their youngest son, Lockie. Uh, Lockie's um, he's pretty talented at making things, all right? And so I asked him whether I could visit uh, his workshop out the back. Uh, one of the tools that he owns is a table saw. Now, this thing is an absolute beast, right? It, it would rip up sleepers for breakfast, I'm sure, if you know what a sleeper is. But Lockie shared with me that this table saw, uh, as powerful and seemingly dangerous as it appears, is actually a very safe piece of equipment. He said, you could stick your finger into the blade as it spins at 10,000 revs per minute and you won't even draw blood. How? Well, the blade carries a small electrical signal, uh, which the safety system continually monitors. When skin contacts the blade, just the minutest part, the signal changes because the human body is conductive. Uh, the change in the signal activates the safety system, stopping the blade in 0.02 of a second. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not too keen to test whether that safety system actually works. Uh, I tell you that story by way of introduction because it helps us to understand the difference between believing something intellectually versus trusting something and actually acting upon it. Sticking your finger in the blade. That would be stupid, don't do that. But it's called faith or trust. Uh, when God speaks, do I trust what he has to say? Not, not just that, that I hear it and, and I believe it intellectually, but uh, that I actually act upon it. Uh, we're going to see in chapter 2 that Micah speaks God's word and it's a word of judgment. And the big question we're asking ourselves today is, do I really believe it? Do I really believe it? Let me pray as we begin. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and we pray that this morning, as we continue to re reflect on the book of Micah, that you might help us to see your character, that you are a holy God who judges evil, that through your judgment, you bring salvation. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Dougal helped us last week as we looked through Micah chapter 1. Uh, it looks in general on the rebellion and sin of God's people and the resultant destruction that's forecasted. Uh, chapter 2 narrows in on a, a particular sin, a specific crime of God's prophets and people. Uh, and in particular, coveting. So point number one, the crime of coveting. Uh, during the week, I jumped on board the bandwagon and I bought a couple of tickets to see Hamilton. Has anyone seen it? 
No, no one here. Uh, it's supposed to be really good. Um, I, I bought them for Nikki's birthday that's coming up in August. I, I, I Googled Hamilton tickets, you know, I clicked, clicked on the top link, I made my selections, entered in my details, clicked on the PayPal link. Uh, Bob's your uncle, right? Uh, turns out I ended up uh, buying Hamilton tickets from a dodgy reseller. I ended up paying double the price for these tickets and I don't even know if I'm going to receive them. I looked at their Facebook page and it's just full of abuse. Uh, So I'm not sure that I'm going to receive my tickets. Now, I wasn't so much worried about the money uh, so much as feeling duped. You know know that uh, time, you know that feeling of being, you've been outwitted, you've been duped, uh, that feeling of injustice. Uh, the company I found out later is actually set up legally, uh, but with the business model of deliberately overcharging patrons. Uh, it's planned, it's deliberate, but it's legal. Uh, what we see in Micah chapter 2 is planned, deliberate, legal injustice on God's people. Uh, have a look from verse 1. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds... At morning's light they carried out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob people of their inheritance. In their greed, they covet and then steal their neighbour's property. Of course, it flies in the face of the last of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. But God's people have sunk so far into sin that even in their sleep, they're dreaming up new ways in which they might defraud their fellow countrymen. Uh, They plan iniquity, plot evil, covet, seize, take, fraud, defraud, rob. And when we skip down to verse 8 and 9, if you've got Bibles in front of you, we see more of this injustice play out. Verse 8, God's people have become their own enemy. And again, verse 8, they, they rob from the unsuspecting without a care in the world. Uh, verse 9, widows already in hardship after losing their husbands, possibly in war, are dispossessed of their only piece of security in their home. And by doing so, they simply not just do injustice to them, but to their children whose inheritance has been now taken from them. Uh, This is most likely legal dispossession. Legal dispossession of people's property and land because they cannot repay their debts. It's legal, but it's merciless. A modern-day example might be those landlords during COVID who evicted their tenants in a time when job security and the inability to pay rent were heightened. Uh, But while it's easy to stand back and to condemn, even for us today, there are likely many ways in which we might unconsciously be creating injustice. I've been reflecting on this uh, over the last few weeks, but uh, 30 years ago, a house was almost exclusively seen as a place to live. But now it's an investment. Now, now investment per se is not wrong. It's talked about as as wise living in, in Proverbs. But the danger, and I think we've seen this in the last 30 or 40 years, 
is that for many, driven by greed, uh, purchasing a multiplicity of houses, all legally, of course, but in doing so, driving up house prices and thereby excluding many from owning their own home at one time. And it's not just houses, right? It, It could be the coveting of a job, a promotion, coveting that relationship that isn't yours to have. It's so easy, I think, to treat our sin lightly. But how does God treat it? How will God respond? Well, Micah promises that God will come in divine judgment. Point number two, the sentence, divine judgment. We read in verse three to five, therefore the Lord says, I'm planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, people will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My possessions, my people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. While you plan iniquity, verse 1, God plans disaster upon you. Uh, The crime of coveting and stealing from God's people will bring the consequence of calamity. Verse 3, you'll be humiliated from your arrogant heights, says Micah. In verse 4, Micah develops this uh, sarcastic lament that your future tormentors will take up. In essence, what Micah is saying is that what you coveted and stole will be coveted and taken from you by an enemy that I will raise up. That's what Micah is saying. In our modern Western world that has displaced the concept that God might judge evil, we find it hard to hear this word that God would plan disaster. I got a lengthy call during the week uh, as I was writing this sermon. It's by a guy named John. I've spoken to him before. Uh, But one of John's biggest gripes with Christianity, he told me, is that God carries out judgment, that God would punish people for their sin. And I get that, right? Uh, No one wants to be punished. But can I say, I can't imagine a world in which God wouldn't judge evil. We, I think, have become sometimes so blinded to the corruption in our world and more particularly in our own lives that we can bear to think that God would judge us for our actions. We don't want to hear that. And neither did Micah's contemporaries. Point number three, the rejection of divine judgment. Uh, We read from verse six, do not prophesy, their prophets say, do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Essentially, stop the dribble, Micah, that's coming out of your mouth. God is not going to judge us. He's not going to punish us. They don't want to face up to the truth that they are culpable for their actions. They want to believe that God will not judge. After all, verse seven, does not the Lord become, does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? 
and saying, God's patient, right? God's patient. They might even be thinking of Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. But of course, they deliberately forget the next line, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. It can be so tempting to preach that God is patient and long-suffering without at the same time preaching that God will judge the unrepentant. That's what Exodus 34 is about. We can become so enveloped in lies that verse 11, we might be so foolish to believe what we might call the 21st century Aussie prophet who would say, prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer. It's mockery, of course, from Micah, but it's true. We so often only want to hear what our itching ears want to hear. Uh, It's a little bit like the person who might go from doctor to doctor to doctor, trying to find a diagnosis that they're happy with. But in the end, the truth remains the truth. Uh, So far in the whole of Micah's message, it's been indictment and judgment, and it's hard to hear. It's hard to read. But as we come to the end of chapter two, there is a glimmer of hope. Uh, Point number four, the hope of divine rescue. We read in verse 12, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather together the remnant of Israel. I'll bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before him, before them, the Lord at their head. This is hope beyond judgment. This is the great reversal of fortunes. The the oppressed here are gathered together from the hand of their oppressors by God's promised shepherd king. Uh, It's difficult to know exactly what Micah might be alluding to here in the future. Uh, It could be Israel's deliverance from the Assyrian king, uh, Sennacherib, as he blockades Jerusalem. But regardless, its purpose is to bring hope for a hopeless people. God will lead them to safety. I remember when I started attending Christchurch St. Ives as a new Christian. Uh, I befriended a guy named Tim, and pretty much every Sunday night after church, he'd invite me over to his place, uh, and we would watch uh, Black Adder. Has anyone seen Black Adder? Um, well, the fourth season of the British comedy Black Adder, you might know, is set in the uh, First World War. One of the central characters is the aristocrat, uh, General Melchat, played by Stephen Fry. General Melchat sends his troops to their death from the comfort of his uh, office without a care. And at one point he says to Private Baldrick, don't worry, my boy, if you should falter, remember that Captain Darling and I are behind you, to which Black Adder sarcastically adds, about 35 miles behind you. Uh, Jesus is not behind us, Uh, he's ahead of us. Uh, The king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. 
Uh, This isn't a promise that God will always deliver his people from harm's way, that God will always give us victory over our enemies. That's not what it's saying. So what does it mean? Well, it means that while God will judge the unrepentant, that's not the end of the story. For all who repent, who heed the word of the good shepherd, entrusting themselves to him for their future, he will deliver them. He will rescue them from the coming wrath. That's what it means. Let me finish. I want you to meet a couple of mates of mine. They're Steve and John. Uh, They're twins, as you can probably tell. Uh, They used to be sheep farmers down in Gundagai. And they told me how at one point they sold a bunch of sheep uh, to their neighbouring sheep farmer. A couple of years later, they happened to visit their neighbour who still had their sheep. Now, part of sheep farming, of course, is herding your sheep. And after a while, the sheep begin to recognise your voice. And so my mates called out to their sheep. And the sheep, still recognising the voice of their former owners, separated and herded themselves from the other sheep. Jesus once said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. The good shepherd goes before us. He lays down his life for you and I, the sheep. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. I want to ask you this morning, have you heard his voice? Do you know his call? One day we'll be confronted with the injustice that we've perpetrated against others. Micah chapter 2 is a small picture of that reality to come. And either we can reject the charge and the divine justice that follows or we can believe in. Trusting in him, sheltering ourselves in him, the good shepherd who suffers the injustice of wicked men on our behalf as he lays down his life for the sheep. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it shows us your character, your holiness, but also your mercy. We pray, Father, that struck by our sin, that we might turn to you, that we might turn to your son, the good shepherd, who uh, shelters us from the coming wrath. We pray in Jesus' name.